Can you ready? Can everybody? Can everybody? Is this on? It's not on. Is this on? Oh, good. Let's start. Sorry for the delay. I keep. Um, we keep coming really early, but it, it's it still takes a while to set up. Um, it's good to see you all, and I'm glad to hear about everybody's recovering from COVID. Let's see, a couple of things before we start. Um, just to be sure we're all together. Um, I'm gonna put together the reading list more definitely now that we've started Chesterton. I'm gonna allow about a month, um, two chapters a week. So that should, get us, that should give us a week. Um, and I know that may sound long to some people. To people who don't struggle with these things, it'll probably sound long. For those of you who are reading it, Kate expressed her difficulty. Mike said he's read Chesterton before. Um, if you've read Chesterton's small pieces, you know how humorous he is and how easy he is to read. Orthodoxy is really easy to read. There's, there's, um, where's John and Cassandra? Oh, they're online. Um, John and Cassandra, just so you know, I appreciated your email. Um, they were expressing their delight in Chesterton, and I think it was Cassandra, I'm not sure, but looking up all these names. You can go through Chesterton and you spend the greater part of your time online looking up names. I, I would just encourage you not to do that, but, well, no, how to put... It isn't what I would ask. I mean, I would ask just good reading, but if you're curious enough to do that, do it. You know, I mean, if, if that's the way you read, do it. Um, my concern is to get through and understand the basic things. That will be my concern here. Um, but I'm sure you'll find that what I said is true, that it's easy to read Chester and his language is not going to present a difficulty. And some of the names will, if you don't know them. You don't have to know the names. You just don't have to stay with it. If you want to know the names, go ahead and, you know, Google them. But the point I want to make here is that when you read Chesterton, you won't have any trouble understanding his sentences. He makes sense. But the depth of his meaning is great. So, I was gonna, I was gonna ask Suzanne to say something tonight, but I, she's right in the middle of a bite and she may not appreciate it, but she was saying to me earlier in the week, she went back to reread um, Suicide of Thought, the Suicide of Thought, because she said, you know, she goes through passages and she knows exactly what the words mean, but she has to go back to figure out what he meant, because he's such a deep thinker, and um, it's, it, it's so easy not to appreciate the depth of his mind, and, and I think what I've said is true. Chesterton is taking on every major disorder in the modern world in a book, one book. 
So what he's doing is extraordinary. You know, orthodoxy is an amazing work. So I don't want to rush through it. I don't want to do that and assume that everybody's going to find it easy. But I don't want to delay. I just don't want to drag this out. So my plan is to do orthodoxy in a month, two chapters a week. Okay, and I hope by now you know that you'll find some ease in this, some encouragement, that a lot of what you might not understand when you read it will become clear in class when we meet, because we'll go over it. And I would hope that I would be able to myself cover the most essential parts. So if there's anything we didn't cover, we don't need to go back on it. It's, to me, it's just less important than other things. I'm, I'm going to touch on what I believe are the most important things. For you all, we're, this is not a college class. We're not doing a class on Chesterton. This is a part of a number of books that we're doing on apologetics. So it's just one work among others. But the depth of his thinking is unusual, it's special, and I think it's going to be important for all of you, certainly for me, for all of us, um, to try to receive the depths of his meaning as well as we can. So I'll put out a schedule. We're going to do Chesterton. We'll take the reading break, or the, yeah, the reading break and have our dinner, and I want to try to plan it on a day when most everybody can make it on a Tuesday night. And when we finish the, that week, the break, we will pick up with scripture, Matthew, John, Revelation, and at which point we'll take another week break, and then we're gonna start, for those of you who wanna go ahead, we're gonna start back with the literature. We're gonna do Melville's Moby Dick, Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. I think if you, for those of you who will stay, you're going to be blown away by Dostoevsky. And I'm going to say something to that effect in a minute, and you'll see why. But anyway, that's what we'll do. We'll pick up the literature and go forward again, okay? Um, we've read Ratzinger's um, Regensburg, and I'm trusting that you all saw that it wasn't academic, it wasn't complicated, it wasn't over people's heads. He, he writes simply, directly. He's a good writer. Um, he's a profound writer. Um, last week, I went over what, in, in my mind, are the major intellectual disorders of our time and their sources. Luther, um, Bacon, Descartes, you know, we went through the list. Um, there's a larger historical problem, and I don't, want to, I don't want to get into it tonight. I want to get into orthodoxy, but in the next few weeks, just to let you know, I'm going to try to give some historical background on what's going on so that you see that the disorders that we're encountering, or encountering are not just from Luther and Bacon and Descartes and the rest, although they are. There's a larger world picture going on. Something's happened to Western civilization in the last 400 years. And we're in the middle of it. You guys happen to have the misfortune of hooking up with a semi-retired English teacher who's <laughs> teaching this stuff. And in my, in my mind, the background of a larger picture is so important for understanding the works that I read. So I'm not a historian. I'm not going to do a lot in history. 
But there's a historical background, and part of what I gave last week is only a small part of a larger picture. Benedict, in a book called um, Western Culture, Today and Tomorrow, I wouldn't, it's a very small book. It's just very small, and it's simple to read. But like Chester, and he's profound. And I don't know of a better book that, that covers what's happened to Western civilization in the last four centuries than this book. So for any of you who, who, who are beginning to sense that there's a larger problem going on, I would encourage you to read this book. He's, he's got a historical background. He's got the mind of a historian, but he's a pope. He's got the mind of a philosopher. So when he unfolds Western civilization in the last four or five centuries, he's, he's covering Western civilization, but he's doing it with a, with a theological mind, with the with reading of scriptures behind him. So he will bring an awareness of something larger than that most historians will not deal with. So when you get through with this book, you'll realize that the problems that we're dealing with are much greater than you knew. If you didn't know that already, <laughs> as, if there, as if what we're doing isn't enough, I'm going to pile this on you. We're not going to deal with it. I'm, I'm going to touch on some things in the next couple of weeks, just briefly, very briefly, to give a sense of what's been going on since the end of the Middle Ages, since the fall of Constantinople. When the Turks conquered that city, that brought to an end what we know as the Holy Roman Empire. A whole medieval view, gone. And we entered a modern world. And we've been dealing with it ever since. Okay, I don't want to go into it here, but historically that marks a moment. So for any of you who are interested in these, the sources so that you have a sense that you better understand what we're dealing with, um, I would recommend this book, okay? It's Ratzinger, Western Culture, um, Today and Tomorrow, okay? It's a wonderful book. It's short, but prof really profound. Um, say? Sorry? The name of it? Western Culture by Ratzinger. Okay, so I think that's it. So let's... Um, I want to say um, I'm missing something here. I think that's it in, in terms of practical problems. I sent around the roll sheet again. Um, so if any of you haven't um, checked it out, it's here. Could, could you look at and I think we're set to go. Karen, can you give it to her right behind? Okay, um, any prayers, any prayer requests for tonight? I want to make this brief, but any prayer requests? Yes. Like? For the people of Kansas, uh, Kansas today is voting on a constitutional amendment that would restrict abortion. And having just come from there last week, it's, it's a pretty big deal. We've already gone through that restricting abortion. They're trying to restrict it. In They're trying to pass a state uh, constitutional amendment. 
Yeah, they send it back to the state. So he's saying the state is not trying to set it up. And they, they are. But the end of it, the purpose of it is to restrict abortions. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Glad the to do it. referendum is today. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, mm, last week in our prayers, I read that passage from St. Paul in which he said, death is working on us and it, it still sort of hovers on my mind. Death is at work on us. You know that we're dying from the day we're born. Death is our end. Father Flynn is famous for saying, we're all gonna see the same end. We're gonna end up in a six by, a three by six box, as Father Flynn is. That's our end. All of us are gonna be there. Nobody's gonna escape it. And you know in Hamlet, for those of you who did this, that in, Towards the end of Hamlet, there's a scene in which Hamlet has to confront death intellectually. He's going to die an act later. But when he's in the graveyard scene, he's tossing up Yorick's skull. And it's the skull of the man that used to play with him when he was a kid. And he asked when Yorick was born, and the grave digger says that Yorick was born on the day Hamlet was born. Or or maybe when he died, I can't remember. But the connection there was that he, came, he became a meaningful figure in Hamlet's life on the day he was, Hamlet was born. Which means that death was always with him. Now he's looking at it, in the, he's looking at a skull. Death is always with us. It's here. And it's the one thing, our, one of the things that our world was, does not want to confront. It does everything it can to hide. It puts graveyards outside the city. <clears throat> one of my criteria for judging a city is the place it makes for graveyards. I'm not kidding. When I, when I taught in Maglin, we happened to live next to a graveyard. I felt blessed. I mean, I was so glad to have a graveyard nearby. I just love them. <laughs> I do. I do. It's, it's, always, <laughs> it's always good to see a graveyard. It's just, you know, people are at rest. The past is there. But anyway, death is with us. Death is at work. What I was calling to mind in our prayer last week was the fact that death is at work with it. This is Paul, his language. He doesn't say this, but but while we're dying, there's so much good in our life. Whatever the suffering is, whatever problems in our families, whatever deaths we encounter, the loss of good friends, the loss of loved ones, family quarrels, whatever it can be, We've got to be thankful that we're here at all because if we weren't born, none of this would have any meaning. We wouldn't be here to experience it. Chesterton's gonna make a big point of that in his book. It's gonna be a big point. So what I was suggesting is that um, there's a great mercy being given to us in the way we die. Christ went to a cross. It was an anguish, asphyxiating death. He, had to suffocate to death being on a cross where he couldn't breathe because the pain was so great. He was God. He had no sins. He was dying for us in our state of sin. So he went through this horrible ordeal and we're asked to die daily. So Paul is saying, death is with us. It's at work in us every day. And I'd like to leave 
I'd like to say thank you, God, for the great mercy that you show us in our life. We owe you a death. Um, help us to be thankful. It, it is at the center of Chesterton's work to be grateful for all we do. It's our faith. That's our faith. So, um, for the great mercy um, you show us in giving us a life at all, I ask for a special grace for those who have special burdens because I know the pains um, can get great for us. Um, sufferings in our family, the loss of loved ones, separations. Um, strengthen all of us um, in whatever burdens we're carrying. Um, let them be a source of growing in our faith in you and in our love for others. Ask for a special blessing on the people in Kansas and across our country, really, that we come behind the decision that was just made concerning abortion. Um, that we see that, um, that the, the challenge, the fight, has only in some ways just begun, that we have to carry this through. So give us courage, um, watch over the people there, give them good hearts and minds, um, lead them to a point where they're more grateful for life and in their desire to support it. And let that be so across our country. Our country's in great danger. When we founded ourselves, we founded it on you. Um, there are signs that we're losing that help us to hold on to um, the place you had in our beginnings. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you take out the... Oh, oh, that's... I knew there was something. Um, late this afternoon, I went back over the notes that I, that I sent to you yesterday and that Ellie printed out. And I made a number of, I think, important changes in the second page. So if you would all go back, sorry, it's just my trying to keep up and not doing a good job of it, but um, go back online and, um, and recopy the notes for tonight because there are significant changes on the second page. And what I've done also is included, um, I've given two sets of page numbers, one for the book Orthodoxy itself and the other for the book Orthodoxy in my collection, because in my collection, it, the, um, the Ignatius edition, it comes late in the book, so the page numbers are much later. So you might have something like 33, 240. 33 refers to the Chesterton book itself. Suzanne, can you hold that book up? Just, you know, I, I, there's different copies, editions. This, by the way, this happens to be, the, the guy who wrote the, this edition is really good. But there are various editions of Chesterton. You've got Orthodoxy alone, but you've also got um, Chesterton in his collected works. Ignatius Press carries them, and I just have, that's the one I'm working out of. So I've given two page numbers. Um, but that's not my concern. My concern is some editing, editorial changes I made. So go back online and get that, okay? Okay, um, the lyrics for tonight. I'm going to stay with the medieval lyrics for a while, um, and I'm going to start 
on, with a poem, a lyric on the second page, on the back of the page that I've given you. It's called Western Wind. And two interesting notes on this, or you may, you may not know. One of them is that during the Tudor reign, in which we were still in a Catholic world, just before it was going to all collapse, in the Tudor reign, they used to present this song before a mass, even though it's not explicitly like so many of the other lyrics in the, in the mass. Um, you wouldn't know that from the lyric, and, but the real reason I want to give it to you is because I have a special fondness for this. When I, when I transfer, after I flunked out of college, I've told you that, I flunked out of college and I went back um, and was a junior at Berkeley, I had to take a class in literary criticism. It was required for the major. We had to learn critical principles. The teacher in that class required us to read this poem when we came to a section on poetry. I'd never read poetry in high school. I was lost, absolutely lost. In fact, I went to him afterwards and I said, what is it? Because I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I, I, these are my words. It's like reading Latin. I don't know it. I do not understand what's going on. What he did was shatter a mystification. He said, poetry consists of statements, phrases about human experience. It's words that form sentences that say something about human experience. That's it. Now that sounds like nothing, but it was really helpful to me because I looked at poetry and thought, holy cow, what is this? But this is one of the first things we read, and here was his requirement to our class. He said, read this poem and do an imitation of it. You ought to try it. So I'd never done anything with poetry before. I went home and did an imitation, and I realized there's nothing I could write that would come close to this. It's a, it, it, there is not a simpler poem in the English language. It's so simple. But there's a beauty to the phrasing and the sound and what this guy does that is poetic, that shows you what poetry is. And I would never appreciated that as much until he said, do an imitation of this. So I, we had to write four lines, trying to stay with the meter, the metrical beat, and the rhyme scheme, and still say something. <laughs> Anyway, I want to read this because I have a special fondness for it, okay? It's just, it's a very simple poem. Um, all, and it's good to know that it, it was used in preparation for the Mass in the Tudor reign, when it was still Catholic. Western wind. Western wind, when wilt thou blow, that the small rain down can rain. Christ, that my love were in my arms, and I in my bed again. That's it. Can you get simpler than that? Western wind, when wilt thou blow? Small rain down can rain. Christ that my love were in my arms, and I in my bed again. Okay, um, I'm going to do just a couple of um, lyrics from the medieval world. Remember, this is, for those of you here when we did this, when we were... Did we do Chaucer? We did do it. Oh, good. Okay, God, getting worse and worse. You remember when we did Chaucer that I read the introduction, the opening lines to the uh, prologue so that you get a feel for the Middle English? Um, because it's very close to our spoken language. It's close to the Renaissance. Um, but you can hear Anglo-Saxon early poetry. It's another language. When you get back to Old English, you wouldn't recognize. There's, 
nothing recognizable, but at this point there is, okay? So these are some medieval lyrics um, in which you can hear that Anglo-Saxon English tone in, um, inflection, you know, the meaning of words change. And there's a beauty um, that it had that in some ways you can say we've lost. One of the reasons for doing this right now is because we've been talking about disorders, that we're in a world that does not recognize a transcendent God, does not acknowledge Christ, and that view has affected art. You can't miss it in modern lyrics. If you listen to modern lyrics, I mean, I can't listen to them. I just, to me, they're just violent. I mean, they're hectoring. I mean, they really are hectoring at you. They're in your face, fighting, verbally. Hectoring, that tone of fault-finding and accusing is at the center of the, the modern lyric. That's the modern lyric. These are the ancient lyrics, I say. So we've been talking about disorders, and we haven't talked about their effects on art. But if you hear these poems, you, you can't not be aware that something's changed. So we're not just talking about what's going on in the mind, we're talking about what's going on with our hearts, the way we feel, and the way modern art is encouraging us to feel what it does to our hearts. Is that clear? I hope I said that strongly enough. Because if our minds are out of order, so are our hearts. So I want to read these just to leave you with some sense of the difference between the lyric poem at the end of the Middle Ages or towards the end of the Middle Ages and the modern lyric, the rap, largely, okay. Fowlers in the Fritha. Fowlers in the Fritha, the fishes in the flood. In Imon waxe wood, much sorrow he walk with. For the best of boon and blood. The fish are in the woods, the fishes are in the water, and he may go mad. He may go mad. Much sorrow he carries with him for the best of boon bone and blood. Who's the best of bone and blood? Christ. So it's because he carries Christ. Now here, I'm saying this because this, this is about madness. He's saying, you know, he, he's on the verge of losing it. So the, the birds are in the wood, the fish is in the water, the sea, and he must, he may go nuts, he may go crazy. For the sorrow he carries with him for the best of boon and blood. Okay? Has everybody got the meaning? Fowl is in the frith, the fishes in the flood. And imon waxe wood, much sorrow he walka with, for best of boon and blood. Best can also, it can mean beast, but it, you know, there's a double meaning to it, but it's clearly pointing to Christ. Now goeth sun under wood. Now goeth, so another poem, another lyric, sad. It's sad. The first one is about a, a man, the lyric, the lyric poet, who's on the verge of going mad. This one is, is the, remember the lyric is always an expression of the interior of the man. It's not drama, we're not getting into drama out there, we're going inside, in the interior. Remember that. Drama's always giving us a world objectively outside of ourselves. The lyric always is an expression of the interior. 
And the modern lyric is traditional in that sense. I mean, what we see when we listen to the modern lyric is the inside is going nuts. I mean, everything perverse is going on there in the modern world. But the lyric always takes us to the interior of the person. That's the difference in the genre. It's not a narrative, it's not a drama, it's a lyric. That's what we've been doing. We start every class with a lyric. We go inside the poet. So the first one is about a guy who's approaching madness. Compare that to a lyric today of a guy going nuts. The second one is about sorrow. How many modern lyrics are about sorrow? I would say 90, 99% of them, 95% of them are about sadness. Particularly westerns. But, but anyway. Now goeth sun under wood. Now goeth sun under wood. Mi ruot Marie di ferro road. Now goeth sun under tray. Mi ruot Marie di sun and day. Okay? The sun's going down. He's sad, Mary. Um, to contemplate her sad face. The sun is going down under the tree. The tree is also an allusion to the cross, right? The tree, but the sun's going down. He's sad. I grieve, Mary, thy son in thee. Okay, you got it? Na goeth sona under wood, mi ruth Marie di ferra roda. Na goeth sona under tre, mi ruth Marie di son in thee. I'm going to do this just because this is a little bit lighter because that's a heavy note and I want to... The cuckoo song. Sing cuckoo, new sing. So it's a celebration of spring. Life is returning. This is Chaucer's world. Life is returning. The birds are singing. There's renewal everywhere. So it's an affirmation of spring. It's a celebration of life. Summer is coming in. hood sing cuckoo. Groweth said and bloweth med. In springeth the wood anew. Sing cuckoo. Yo bleedeth after loam, lehueth after kavaku. Um, bullock starteth, book ferteth, he farts. Marie sing cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Well sing as the cuckoo, the swicker the never knew. Never stop singing. Okay. Sumer is a kuminin, lehood sing cuckoo, keep singing. Groweth said, the seeds are growing, bloweth med, the meadows, and springeth the wood new. Life is returning, sing cuckoo. You oblateth after loma, lehuth after kaldeku. Bullet starteth, buka verteth. Marie sing cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Well singeth thou cuckoo, the sweeteth the never knew. Notice how it used the word fart unapologetically. If you've read Chaucer, you know we're, you're not in a, we're, we're not in a Puritan world then. We're in a Puritan world today. You don't say certain things because if you don't mean you're bad. The Middle Ages would have sworn, they said, Jesus Christ, you know, um, fart. I mean, you can't watch a movie without hearing the F word every three sentences. Um, but they would never use the word fart. And if you remember um, in Chaucer, remember when in Monksdale when he was describing um, the, the guy who wanted to extort money from the priest and or the you know, the priest and he gives an image of farting against a wheel and the fart dividing up into 12 parts and giving the everybody I mean it was comic it was funny there's a wonderful acceptance of the human body 
then in a way that's not true today. So those are just some medieval lyrics. I mean, set them against our modern, you know, what you hear today and you, you, you can't read or hear them without becoming aware of something we've lost. Okay. See if I can do this. Very, very, very quickly. Um, once again, I would just encourage all of you to um, not be too preoccupied with names and terms in Chester and just keep reading because the, the most important thing is the argument. The, the names will add things, so for those of you who would like to do that, do that. But don't feel that you have to, you know, just stay with the reading. It's like the Iliad, just stay with it, it'll get clear. Um, Chester grew up in a, in a Christian household. It was, if I remember correctly, it was Universalist, Unitarian, so it didn't believe in the Trinity, but it was a, still a Christian culture. But he grew up surrounded by all of these great intellectuals and, uh, that were at the beginning of the modern world that are right on the threshold of modernity. If you, if you think about um, 1890s, 1900, 1910, 1910, we're into Hemingway, Faulkner. I mean, I'm mentioning those because I'm assuming they're familiar. Robert Frost and the modern world as we know it. But just prior to them, um, the world was being defined in terms of Darwin, Freud, and Marx, the modern rationalists. So Chesterton grew up at a time when those modern rationalists were having their way because intellectually they were so convincing. So the modern intellectuals were looking at them as if they were um, sources of truth. And Chesterton grew up wanting like them to be original, and, um, but he found himself realizing that every, there was something wrong with every one of the positions he encountered. And so in, I think it's 1908, is that, I think this was 1908, he wrote Orthodoxy. It's his attempt to answer them, and what's at the center of them is the one thing I don't want you to forget. The central thesis of orthodoxy is that we've got all these um, positions that present themselves as being liberal, modern, enlightened, that they will free us from superstitions, the church largely. And the argument that he's making is that er there's something wrong with every one of them. And this is what's crucial to take away from this. The only means by which he can answer every one of those arguments, the center from which he can answer every one of them is orthodoxy. It's the Apostles' Creed. Now how many of us ever look at the Apostles' Creed and say, in that creed are all these sources of rationality that would enable me to answer all these disorders? Is that clear? That's what orthodoxy is doing. He says the center of this, he doesn't, he doesn't repeat it, he doesn't talk about faith. This is not a pietistic book, it's a rationalistic book. But what he's saying is, it's the Apostles' Creed that gives us the means by which we can answer every intellectual disorder in the world. Flat. Okay. So he wrote this, is that right, Mary, is this sick? 1908? 1908, 
Yeah, and he, and he doesn't convert until around 1920, so he's you know, a decade off still from his conversion. But I, it's, to me, it's wonderful. I can't read this book and think, before he ever realized that he was Catholic, this book is absolutely Catholic in the best That it means it, it covers everything. Everything is there. It's Catholic in that sense. Every disorder has a, a basis by which to be answered in, the, in this Catholic faith. How many of us could take on any of the disorders in our world and answer them using our creed? He's saying, if you don't have a fixed creed, if you don't stand on this, then everything around you is going to go nuts and you won't be able to answer it. Let me put it differently. If everything is chaotic, I hope everybody sees this. If everything is chaotic, if nothing but chaos goes on around us, then there's no meaning to anything we do. We have nothing to lose. We can do any, We can have affairs, we can split up, we can break our vows, because there's no meaning to anything. I hope that's clear. If the world is nothing but chaos, if everything is just random flux, then there's no meaning to the world. This is his argument. There's no meaning to the world, there's no romance, there's no adventure. For there to be any romance in the world, any adventure, there has to be something to lose. There has to be a meaning. The central meaning of the world, according to this book, is orthodoxy. So even though he never goes into it, behind it is the Apostles' Creed. Now how many of us Catholics live in a world in which we take our faith for granted and don't make that connection between the Apostles' Creed and our using our powers of reason to answer the world? It's going to be my opening. This is a long opening. I want to get to my opening. We've been dealing with popes. Leo, John Paul, and Benedict, and every one of them, every one of the popes, Fidei Ratio, Regensburg Address, have been calling us to reason, to recover a healthier sense of reason. Not to faith, to reason. Okay? Chesterton says on page 235 in my book, the last chapter has been concerned with only a few of, with, with a fact of observation. That what peril of morbidity there is for man comes rather from his reason than his imagination. It was not meant to attack the authority of reason, rather it's the ultimate person, purpose of this book to defend it, for it needs defense. The whole modern world is at war with reason. Okay, hold on to that. Um, He talks about evolution. I'm going to come back to this in a minute because he's going to make the point that ev evolution as a theory actually undermines reason. I'll, I'll come back to it, but I want to read this. Evolution is either an innocent scientific description of how certain earthly things come about, or if it's anything else more than this, it's an attack upon thought itself. It's an attack upon reason. If you look at the implications of evolution, I'll, I'll come back to it you have to say that ultimately it's going to undermine reason itself. If evolution destroys anything, it does not destroy religion but rationalism. So I just read you two quotes from Chesterton. The ultimate purpose of this book is to defend reason, for it needs defense. The whole modern world is at war with reason and the tower reels. 
If evolution is anything more than this, it's an attack upon thought itself. If evolution destroys anything, it does not destroy religion, but rationalism. Okay? So, um, I want to start with, um, with this question. If I can, I'm, I'm still learning this, so just be, if you would just be patient with me. I'm not comfortable doing this, you know that. Okay, here's my opening question. Those are my opening thoughts, but here's my opening question. Um, <laughs> if anybody came to this, whatever you want to call this class, um, looking for an inspiration for faith, I think they'd probably walk away. Literature, are you kidding? Um, because you know from the beginning we've been dealing with, we've been dealing with literature and only recently did this stuff on apologetics and I wanted to take this break to go back to a ground before we proceeded. Here's my question. Every one of these popes that we've been reading so far have been calling the Catholic Church back to reason. They were, they were on to recover a sound philosophy, a healthier use of reason. C.S. Lewis backed that up in Abolition of Man. And now we're reading Orthodoxy and Orthodoxy, Chester is saying very clearly that the purpose of his book is to defend reason because it needs defending. None of them are saying our faith doesn't need defending because um, none of them believe that that's true. It does need defending. The question is, can we use our reasons well enough to defend it? But here's my question. If our faith this is going to be a jump, so it's not going to get us to the wait, just wait on the book for a second. I want to get to it, but I want to, I want to start by asking this question and ask everybody to give some thought to it. If our faith rested on a flawed reason, a disordered reason, what would it do to that faith? You know that the fundamentalist world separates the two, that, that for them, natural reason is corrupted, it's depraved. So, so they say, faith alone, fide sola fide, right? Faith alone. I remember this song, I wanted to go to the, the, the choir director in our church that, that said, grace is enough. I don't know if you've heard that piece of music because it's a popular piece. Grace is enough. Every time I hear that song, I, I get more than a little concerned. That can't be true for a Catholic. It cannot be true. And it's not because a Catholic doesn't believe that we only get to heaven through grace. But the Catholic believes grace perfects nature. It builds on it. If there's no nature there, what does grace work with? Grace is not enough by itself. So my question, and this is a leading question, this is just an opening question for everybody here tonight before we turn to the book. What happens to a faith, if you take the readings we've been doing, what happens to a faith if it rests on a disordered reason? You remember John Paul said that faith and reason are like two birds, of a, or two wings of a bird, but if you cripple one, but he doesn't go into it. So I'm asking everybody here, just to take a couple of minutes, most of us take faith very seriously. The Protestant world does. 
we're in a Protestant South. <clears throat> the fundamentalist in the Protestant South um, undermines, devalues reason. It's corrupt, it belongs to the natural world. So Catholics live in a culture in which their courage to look at faith as if it doesn't depend on reason in some ways. That's not the position we're in. So everybody following? So my question is, if we have a faith, but it rests on a flawed reason, a disordered reason, what does it do to that faith? What, what will the effect be? Can we just take a few minutes with that? Any, I really would like to hear what you guys, guys think about that. Bob, give me your thoughts. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> Come on, I want it off the top of your head, without notes or anything. If if you take away reason, if you do away with it entirely, or you've got a flawed reason, what effect would it have on our faith? You can put your faith in anything. I mean, people put their faith in all kinds of stuff in this world that is meaningless. It gets you nowhere. So. You have to have the proper reason for why you're doing what you did. I think, I think all the disorders that we've read about, you see them all. They're, I, I don't think you'll ever get to a true faith unless you can figure out what Christ was trying to say to the Yeah, yeah. Oh, baloney. Wait, I, and I know that this is going to put you on the spot and it's too big, but I'm still going to ask it. But so, even though I know, make it simple. I mean, I, you know, it's obviously a loaded question, but you said if you don't have a proper reason, what does it mean? So it goes back. If your reason is flawed or there's something disordered with your reason, it will affect your faith. What if you don't have a proper what does a proper sense of reason mean? What does that mean? Well, in C.S. Lewis, we just learned that it's so easy to, for to be somebody to come along and teach you how not to reason. And <laughs> basically, take the objective truth out of things by saying that the way, the way you have to look at things is the way we think you should. And so, where do you get the real truth? Yeah. Where do you get your real reason? Yeah. Melody, do you have a thought on this? I know you do. Come on. If, no, I didn't, I didn't hear my thought. Yeah. No, 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 no. He's, he's saying he's not repeating. He's just being stubborn. What he, what, he said, what he said was, if people have faith in lots of things and faith can go wrong, if you don't have a proper sense of reason to help you, you, you can make the world into anything. So, But you have a... Go ahead. So, um, if you don't have reason behind faith, then... You expect people to believe whatever the leader believes. And if the leader 
believe something incorrect, that person will lead people down the wrong road. Or they would resort to violence, like in Afghanistan, where you have to be Muslim. And, and that, because the only way people involved in your faith is to threaten them. Is to what? Oh, threaten them, yeah. Right. Anybody else? So that's why our faith has to have reason with it. And I think that's why a lot of younger people have left first. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't know how to talk to them about why our faith is reasonable. Yeah. I'm so glad you used that word too. And it's, I mean, the example you used, I'm really glad for because in that case, you've got a state-enforced faith, you know, in in some Islamic countries. Not not the way it was 100 years ago, but it's still a, you've got the same condition in some Protestant states. Esteban, you're shaking your head. Do you have something to? I like it all. Huh? I'm just agreeing with okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody? If you don't, if we've got a skewed reason, if we've got a disorder, if there's something wrong with reason, how will it affect our faith? Will it affect our faith? That's my question. Well, then you have, um, you have a faith that's built on shifting sands, and it will be prone to be, it will be fragile, and it will be vulnerable to being taken away from Flesh that out. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, but can you... In, in a way, bad, bad reasoning would be better than no reasoning at all. Because there are people in cultures where a simple faith exists. Um, there's beautiful simple faith. My grandparents didn't know a lot intellectually right. about the right. faith. Right. Um, but they just knew it was true. Yeah. And they held on to that. Yeah. So that's different, but it's, it's worse to have bad reasoning than no reasoning. So bad reasoning will lead you to a faith that is vulnerable to be knocked down and taken out. And, uh, Mary, go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's a faith that won't stand, like the house built on sand. Rough times come and then somebody disputes it and people start questioning and then it it just dies and opens up maybe a new can of worms. Yeah. That's Christ's parable of the seeds. You know, on hard ground and soft ground and the birds pick it and um, Suzanne and I were talking about this on the way over and I was thinking about I was you St. Thomas says somewhere that the the faith of a peasant woman is far greater than the f sometimes the faith of intellectuals who don't have a good ground for it. Um, let me see if I can flesh that out a little bit. And one of the reasons for doing this work together, we live in a very intellectual age. I mean, the ideal of, of Western civilization, which is the leading civilization, is education, developing the mind, our powers of technology and science. So we, you know, we've gone through, we can master nature. Those are the ideals of our world. Um, if you took a peasant woman who was uneducated and, and asked the question that I'm asking, how would you look at her? And I would say um, that I, this is my, some of you can disagree with this, but I'm trying to illustrate a point. Um, 
She may not have a good education, but I'm assuming if she has a faith and she's an ordinary woman, if she goes around her ordinary affairs, she's going to be using her practical reason every moment of her life. When she gets up to cook breakfast, when she dresses her kids, when she sends them out, when she scolds her kids for doing something. You don't have to be educated to do any of that. In fact, sometimes, if you, I, Susanna's been saying to our grandchildren, don't go to college. This is, this is somebody, both of us love, you can know that, both of us love education. But she's doing everything she can using her practical reason based on common sense. So is she going to pay any attention to these intellectuals who have all these arguments for what they're doing? Her practical reason is, good to, to go to my question above, her practical reason is grounded in nature. She knows the herbs, she knows what medicines to give her kids, she doesn't need a college education for that, right? So it's not like faith and reason are separated in here. They're not. They're just not. In fact, I'd say they're consonant. They're in harmony with each other. So reason and faith are not at odds there. And she doesn't, in a pre-Reformation world, she doesn't believe that she's corrupted or her powers of reason are corrupted. We do, or the Protestant world does. So she's not struggling against something. There's not going to be a but. I'll do this but. It'll be an and. She'll do something and she'll have a reason because she's in tune with nature. Her reason, her powers of reason are consonant with the sources of rationality, the logos in nature. Now did I, did I skip something? Because I, I know we've talked about the logos, but is, is everybody following me? The logos means there's this reason, rationale, intelligibility. Everything in nature means something. So it's not like she's disconnected or, or she looks at nature as this horrible evil that is fouled. She doesn't. So it's not a but. I'll do this, but I have to over... You know, it's not. She's... So for her, faith and reason are consonant. They, they work hand in hand. When you get into the modern world and you're educated, suddenly you have all these reasons that make you question your faith. Then you're in a different world. That's our world. And the question that I've been posing and we've been wrestling with for the last couple of months is, um, lots of people are leaving the church. The numbers of nuns, the people who have no interest in religion, those numbers are increasing. Why? Because the intellectual world is so much part of our lives and people grow up taking for granted. So if they grow up in a faith that takes reason for granted and suddenly you're in an education which shows you all of this stuff must be wrong and you have no, nobody's helped you to answer them, what do you do? One of the reasons reason I want to go back and do a little bit of history is with the fall of Constantinople and the end of the, end of the Holy Roman Empire. That marks the beginning of the modern, modern world and the emergence of the modern secular state. We are, we, are, we are in our civilization attempting to create a completely secular world based on secular, based on reason. That's why Chester, or that's why C.S., that's why Benedict and, and, um, and John Paul and why Chester, or Lewis's works are so important because they're, they're answering disordered reasons. They're trying to show that there's a healthier reason. The assumption being if you have a healthier reason, which means you're open to something transcendent, 
you have a way of holding on to your faith instead of denying it or leaving it. Because for us, faith and reason should be consonant. The fact that we the fact that it is means when your faith and reason are healthy, your stance towards reason leaves you open to mysteries. You can enter into them because your reason is not at odds with them. Is that clear? So anybody holding our position would be more readily open, susceptible to mysteries. We know that there's more going on over. It's not against reason. It will enrich reason. Right? And faith conversely, faith conversely can offer things to your reason to make your reason richer. So both of them grow more health, like a healthy person. So everything we've been doing is in response to a modern world that is that it's basing its view of reality and happiness strictly on rational terms. But if reason goes bad, right, if that's the basis of our life, the secular modern state, if reason goes bad, what will happen to our faith? And what will happen to the world? And right now we've been reading works that show what happens. The world goes nuts. Um, we lose it. It's not just that we lose faith, that the world becomes a more violent place, it becomes a more disordered place. Reason's not healthy. Reason's not doing what it should be doing. Let me stop there. Go ahead, yeah, Cheryl. Everything you're saying, the board just keeps going back to me, humility, 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 because we have to have humility in order to have peasant who had a natural form of humility she didn't think about it. She's not self-conscious the way we are. She would have just gone about her business. And it takes humility to, to move forward, to be open-minded enough to be able to balance the two. Yeah. That's what I read out of that today. Yeah. And uh, what you're telling me. It seems to be the secret. Most of us, I forget about that a lot. You want to think you're humble, but usually you become very humble during times of... You know that I'm always going to be something of a devil advocate here. I don't. I don't want to. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't want to romanticize a peasant woman. L let me just try to be clear here. I, I don't have any question that 300 years ago, before education meant something, there would have been a peasant woman in a village. But I also have no question that she would have been stubborn, proud, lacking humility. She would have fought with her husband. If you, if you read Chaucer, read the wife of Bastail. You know. We have never been innocent, but she would have never been as self-conscious about reason as we are today because education has become so important in our lives. She would have gone about her business, she would have fought with her husband. If she was the wife of Bath, she would have put five husbands in the ground, <laughs> you know. Um, but the point I'm making is that she would, been, she would have been less reflective than we are. Okay, I want to stop now and go to the book, but I want to begin with this thought. The major disorders of our world, if I can put them in a nutshell, are 
subjectivism, relativism, skepticism. Those are the major ones from, from um, C.S. Lewis and abolition, but in the others. Subjectivism. After Luther, we believe that our private wills become arbiters of everything. Whatever we feel, whatever we happen to see or believe, that's the way it is. Which means the world's going to be relative. What's true for me? If, if the private will, the subjective will, is the arbiter of everything, then it's going to change for person to person. And we've created a condition of relativism. Truth is relative, whatever, you know, my truth is not the same. You can have your truth, I have mine. There is no truth. And skepticism. The modern, the modern mind has become skeptical. After Descartes, you question everything. Remember I said, when we went through this last week, um, he saw that the um, senses are often unreliable, and he began by doubting everything. So what's the difference between the real, or what I think is reality in my dream and real life? And Chester is answering that. He said, if you don't believe your senses, you already have nuts. So the major disorders, subjectivism, relativism, skepticism, okay, in one form or another, dominate our lives. They're the lenses through which we see everything. And Chesterton is saying, as clearly as can be said, if you don't have a fixed creed, if the way you stand doesn't rest on reality the way it is, and that's a creed for you, that's fixed, you have no way of answering any of those problems. And it's only because you do stand on that creed that you can't answer them. So hidden in the Apostles' Creed, are all the sources of reality that we need to deal with the disorders of the world. Do we see them? Do we see them? Chesterton's making them clear. C.S. Lewis is too. C.S. Lewis got all of his arguments from Chesterton. But, okay, let's turn to the book, okay, unless there's any quick questions or... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. That's been true for a good while now. Almost all academic journals have caved in on that. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to um, the main, the main, the maniac. Oh, sorry. The maniac. Chesterton begins the, the maniac by describing this conversation he had with a friend and the friend saying that the, the most important thing was that a person have confidence in himself. Can there be anything more modern than that? And Chesterton saying absolutely not. Um, the men who are confident in themselves are the men who occupy Hanwell. It's the sane asylum. I don't want to go into this because I, I know I can start a million arguments here and I don't want to do that right now. Let me just, if I can put it simply, I think the problem is that if a man just believes in himself because he's confident in himself, he will close in and make his world the arbiter of everything. He's just confident in himself. 
And Chesterton's saying the last thing you should be confident of yourself, what you should be confident about is something larger than yourself. Because if you do that, you're firm in everything you do. You will not misstep. Even if you misstep, if your belief is in a God that forgives, you'll misstep and pick yourself up again. But if all you believe in is yourself and you misstep, or things don't go the way you want, then what's going to happen? He says on page, in page 217 of my book, it's the second page of the meaning. I can't keep up with the page numbers, so I hope you'll just all be patient. He says, the ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with the necessity. They had to have a beginning. They began with a fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes. The modern world started with two facts. They're the two inescapable facts of the world. They're not any different now than they were before. One of them is sin. What's the other one? Death. Nobody can avoid it. Those are your starting points. You have to deal with that, okay? And by the way, the Apostles' Creed deals with both of them. The strongest saints and the strongest skeptics alike took positive evil as the starting point of their argument. In a rationalistic world in which you deny God and you deny evil, you can't start there anymore, so you start with madness, the insane asylum. That's the one thing nobody, right? I mean, that's the one thing you want to avoid. Everything you're trying to, wait, this is really interesting. He'll say in here, um, one of the ways of getting around dealing with sin is by to act like it's not there. Deny it. Hold on to that just for a second. Hold on, right? Um, if, if you believe that adultery is not, I mean, people can have, um, what do they call it? Open marriages? Then you're not doing anything wrong. You can be married to your spouse and have a dozen other sexual affairs, and you're okay. What you've done is explain away a fault. So one of the ways of getting around a fault is explaining it away, denying it. He's saying that in the ancient times they started with a fault. There was something wrong. All the tragedies, all the comedies imply it. Okay? Or they wouldn't have written them. Um, the modern world, because it wants to be happy, has to deal with one thing. The one thing in the way of happiness is not sin because they deny it. It's insanity. Something wrong with your head. Okay? So that's where they start. Page 218. To the insane man, his insanity is quite prosaic because it's quite true. A man who thinks himself as a chicken is to himself as ordinary as a chicken. A man who thinks he's a bit of glass is to himself as dull as a bit of glass. It's the homogeneity of his mind which makes him dull. It's only because we see the irony of his idea that we think him even amusing. It's only because he does not see the irony of his idea that he's put in Hanwell. In short, oddities only strike ordinary people. Now hold on. And I'm going to I'm, I'm going to fly past things if you'll just be patient for a second. Does everybody see that it's only because we're sane that we can perceive an insanity? Because if we, if we were in that insanity, we couldn't see it. The world would be that way. If, so if you're a schizophrenic, you believe somebody's after you, that's the way you're going to see the world. You're not going to see there's something. You'll have no sense of irony. If you say to the schizophrenic, um, you keep saying that guy's following you. He's not following Look at him. He's not even looking at you. The guy will say, of course he's not looking at me. He doesn't want anybody to know he's after me. 
He will, he will always have a reason. Insane people never lack a reason. None of, I mean, I think most of us are on the verge of insanity every day of our life because we always have a reason. Tell me, anybody in this room and stand up and, and admit this, that you're not ready to have an argument with your spouse at the drop of a hat. We give reasons for everything we do. The question is, how good, how, how well ordered are our reasons? It's only the same person who can see the insanity because of the difference. The person who's in that insanity can't see it. Okay? Um, he says, so let us begin. He first answers the accusation, the, the problem with insanity is that it's, it, it rests, its origins are the imagination. And Chester says, absolutely not. It's the poets who are the ones who are more sane because they tend to open on another world. They know that there's something more. On 219, mathematicians go mad and cashiers, but creative artists very seldom. Why do mathematicians tend to go mad? And they do, because they're caught in a small world of numbers. That's it. The poet generally is larger, saner because he opens on something larger. He gives the example of Cooper, the English poet who committed suicide. But he said it wasn't because of his imagination, it was because of his Calvinistic belief. Because he believed in predestination and damnation and took his life. Um, 220, such men are indeed to madness near aligned. Their incessant calculation of their own brains and other people's brains is a dangerous trade. There's one of the signs of madness is that we're always trying to calculate, figure out, get control of something instead of letting go some. Is Chester saying not take control? No, he's not. He's just saying if we overdo it, try to get control of everything, um, we may be in more danger than we know. Page 220 at the bottom. If great reasoners are often maniacal, it's equally true that maniacs are commonly great reader, reasoners. When I was engaged in a controversy with a clarion on the matter of free will, that able writer, Mr. R.B. Souther, said that free will was lunacy because it meant causeless action, and the actions of a lunatic would be causeless. I do not dwell here upon the disastrous lapse in deterministic logic. Obviously, if any actions, even a lunatic's, can be causeless, determinism is done for. Now, I want to pause on this because it seems to me these are one of those statements you can read and think, I understand the words. Do we understand the meaning? So I want to stop. What is he saying here? Souther says that free will was lunacy because it meant causeless action and the action of a lunatic would be causeless. What's wrong with that position? This is a modern, probably a modern psychologist or a, what's the matter with that position? And I've got to keep you guys in here. What's wrong with that? Oh, I don't hear your, your is your mic on? There it is. What's he saying? What's, what's, what's the issue there? What's the irony on Southers? Southers says that free was lunacy because it meant causeless action, and the actions of a lunatic would be causeless. I do not dwell here upon the disastrous lapse in deterministic logic. 
And he goes on, what's the issue here? And the irony. I think this is profound and you can, you can read it and go past it and not understand it. I just want to make sure we understand it. Well, Go ahead. Um, um, I'm going to jump in. Melody, you want to jump in here? Because I'm right close to everybody. Can you hear the sound? That's bad. Okay, so he's assuming that free will has no reason behind it. Um, that's why he says free will limits me. When in actuality, you can choose to do right things. Um, and somebody who is a lunatic isn't, uh, isn't uh, formed in any other way. Does he believe in free will or is he a determinist? What's his starting position? Is that clear? Let's just get clear. Is he a deter does he believe in free will or is he a determinist denying free will? What's his starting position? He's a determinist, right? He does not believe in free will. That's his starting position. So he looks at lunacy as an illustration of causeless action. That is free will, that you're not determined. So somebody, <laughs> do, you, uh, do you see? So anybody who's he starts with the assumption that all human beings are determined. We live in a determined universe. We don't have free will. So he thinks the difference between a sane man and an insane man is the insane man has causeless actions. Can't explain them. They don't exist within that perspective of determined actions. So Chester is saying, um, I do not dwell here upon the disastrous lapse in deterministic logic. Obviously, if any actions, even a lunatics, can be causeless the term is done for. If a lunatic can have a causeless action, it follows, i.e., by logic, therefore, a sane man can have. That is, he can, he can kick a stone. Not because it's, it was determined that he'd do it, it was a freely chosen, nothing caused it. He just willed it. So here at the opening, he's already taking on those people who take the position that all things are determined. Because if that's true, you take away free will. All causeless action, all freely done actions are done away with. Look at his reason. And Chesterton goes on, it's, it's really lovely. He says, um, a few lines down, if any human acts may be looselessly called causeless, they are the minor acts of a healthy man. Whistling as he walks, slashing the grass with a stick, kicking his heels. Wouldn't it be nice if any time during the day we were walking, we just broke into song or whistled? Freely? Take that away. What kind of a world are we in? I'm not kidding. Because what's the difference between a machine and a human being that way? A machine is a thing, in mo a, a thing that doesn't think in motion. 
How is a man different if he's in motion he has no mind with which to think? What kind of a world are you in if you could go and just suddenly break into song or whistle down the street or um, give your wife a kiss or whatever it is, yeah? But if everything's determined, and think about the implications because, it, well, he's going to go on. Um, it is exactly such careless and causeless actions that the madman could never understand. For the madman, like the determinist, generally sees too much. For him, everything has an explanation. The guy out in that car is following me. There's nothing that's going to escape his paranoia. That will define everything. He'll give it a reason. He'll mark it. But the last thing you can say is that he's free or healthy. Or he's got, Bob's word, a proper reason. His reason is what's sick. Sorry, Chuck, that got broken. Can you say that again slowly? Sorry. Yes, sure. So, what's the character that the determinants? The determinants have an answer to that. What did you say that? Well, you wrote the song. You thought it was an act of free will or spontaneous, so but there was an opportunity. It was fated to happen. Got it. Did you understand? He said it was fated to happen. Somebody Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, good. Good for you. Right. Right. Um, page 222, this seems to me to get the crux of the chapter, The Maniac. He goes on to say that um, the difference between a sane man and a maniac, a madman, is, is not reason. They both use reason. They'll never stop using reason. The difference is in the narrowness of the madman's world. He's, he's confined himself to a smaller world he doesn't stand on the threshold of something larger. He will find a reason for everything, just like the paranoic or the schizophrenic, yeah? So he says, um, 2.22, nevertheless he's wrong um, with this people who see things this way, the madman, the, the guy who thinks he's Christ or the king of England. A small circle is quite as infinite as a large circle because both of them suggest infinity. It's, you know, complete. But it's not as large. A bullet is quite as round as the world, but it's not the world. There is such a thing as a narrow universality. There is such a thing as a small and cramped eternity. You may see it in many modern religions. Now speaking quite externally and empirically, we may say that the strongest and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. This is going to get scary in a minute. You may all want to get up and walk around in a second. Wait till you see where I'm going with this. Speaking quite externally and empirically, just factually, we may say that the strongest and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. The madman looking at the guy in the car is going to be absolutely complete, right? He's got an answer for everything. If you go down the block and say something up, he'll see things in exactly those same terms. It won't change. The healthy man is distinguished because wherever he goes, he should be able to understand something right in front of him, but he also knows something more is going on. He's not imprisoned. 
The lunatic's theory explains a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. On 2.23, how much happier you'd be if you only knew that these people cared nothing about you, like the schizophrenic with the everybody's persecuting him. One of the signs of your illness is that you can't stop talking about your, or you can't stop thinking about yourself. You see everything in terms of yourself in this narrow, closed world. How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it, you could really look at other men with common curiosity and pleasure. If you could see them walking as they are in their sunny selfishness and their virile indifference, they don't care about you. That's a healthy sign. There's a world larger than your own. You would break out of this tiny and this tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played. Um, 225, or actually 224 in the middle of the page. Given what we're talking about, this condition, a man cannot think himself out of mental evil, for it is actually the organ of thought that has become diseased, ungovernable, and as it were, independent. He can only be saved by will or faith. What was the central sin? Those of you who did the Divine Comedy, if you can all, if you can have your attention for a second. Remember the comedian when we went downhill? You remember the three divisions of hell? Connie, on the spot, three divisions of hell. Upper division, the three animals. The leopard, the lion, the she-wolf. Okay, can you help? The top level is incontinence. The sins of incontinence, lack of self-control. The middle sins were violent and it was an aggressive will. What were the, the bottom sins? What was at issue there? Fraud. It was the intellect. Remember? The, the source of all diseases in evil or sins is the intellect. It covers up, it disguises, it dismisses, it you know, minimizes. It can do a mil I would think, I mean, the great, the great danger for any of us, I would think, because we have confession. When we go to confession, do we really get behind all the things or do we still cover up or, you know, have... And the whole point of concession is to just bear ourselves, to get out of ourselves. A man cannot think himself out of mental evil, for it's actually the organ of thought that has become diseased, ungovernable, and as it were, independent. He can only be saved by will or faith. It's one of the few times he will say something like that. 225, he's with this man, this, the madman. This is so wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to connect this with our world today. Suzanne is, what's the word? I mean, she's on record. She's on record for saying to our whole family, do not send your kids to education. You know how much we love. I don't know what we're going to do with this. He is without healthy hesitation and healthy complexity. As it explained in the introduction, I have determined in these early chapters to give not so much a diagram of a doctrine as some picture of a point of view. And I've described at length my vision of the maniac for this reason. But just as I'm affected by the maniac, so I'm affected by most modern thinkers. That unmistakable mood or note that I hear from Hanwell. What was that note? I just read it. 
The mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. That unmistakable mood or note that I hear from Hanwell, I hear also from half the chairs of science and seats of learning today. And most of the mad doctors are mad doctors in more senses than one. I'm almost afraid to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. When you look at what teachers are teaching kids today, how much confidence do you have in the reason, the powers of reason, of those teachers? Is what they're teaching our children, helping our children to become more reason, to use reason properly, or is something else going on? C.S. Lewis in Abolition called it indoctrination. They're creating this utopia world and they're conditioning people to see things that way. I love this line. I hear also, what I hear from Hanwell, that I hear from these insane institutions, I'm hearing in half the chairs of science and seats of learning today. Most of the mad doctors are doctors in more senses than one. You don't belong in that class, Bob. I hope I don't either. I'm a doctor. I'm not a doctor the way he is. But. Is everybody following? Yeah, let's go. Go ahead. Did you? What he wants to do right now is take a look at some of the major causes of this madness. On page 225, take first the more obvious case of materialism. As an explanation of the world, materialism has a sort of insane simplicity. Lots of people believe there's nothing but matter. That's it. Now, if matter is all there is, what's wrong with that in what it does to our minds? 226, this is so good. It must be understood that I am not now discussing the relationship of these creeds to truth for the present, solely that the relation to health is concerned about a healthy mind. Later in the argument, I hope to attack the question of objectivity, of objective verity. Here I speak only of a phenomenon of psychology, the effect that it has. I do not for the present attempt to prove to Hegel that materialism is untrue. All he's saying is it's not a healthy doctrine to hold on to. Why not? What's wrong with materialism? The only thing that exists is matter. What's wrong with it? Outside of matter, yeah. Go ahead, Mr. Did you? Yeah, and there will be reasons that can prove that too, but go ahead, did you have? Anybody else? Do whatever we want with matter. He says at the bottom of that same page, um, a Christian is only restricted in the same sense that an atheist is restricted. He cannot think Christianity false and continue to be a Christian. The atheist cannot think atheism false and continue, that is, the fact that we're a Christian means certain things, but the fact that an atheist believes certain things makes him an atheist. We can't change that or make it other than it is. But as it happens, there's a very special sense in which materialism has more, more restrictions than spiritualism. Mr. McCabe thinks me a slave because I'm not allowed to believe in determinism. I think Mr. McCabe is a slave because he's not allowed to believe in fairies. If we examine the two vetoes, we shall see 
that he is really much more in a pure veto than mine. The Christian is quite free to believe that there is a considerable amount of settled order and inevitable development. We believe that some things are determined. Doctors depend on that. If, if they didn't, they couldn't diagnose something. They'd have no laws with which to apply what they do, right? So a Christian makes a large healthy place for determinisms. But the materialist is not allowed to admit into his spotless machine the slightest speck of spiritualism or miracle. The materialist cannot allow the presence of the intellect. Everything about the world shows design and intelligence that there's something more. The determinist can't allow that. So just in terms of a larger reason, a larger world, or a narrower one, the Christian's on a healthier ground. Because he can understand everything that's determined, but he also is open to mysteries, to free will. So we're going back to that statement about the guy who said, you know, the lunatic <laughs> has all this causeless action. That, um, um, Two twenty-eight. Um, in passing from this subject, I may note that there is a queer fallacy to the effect that material, materialistic fatalism is in some ways favorable to mercy, to the abolition of cruel punishments or punishments of any kind. By the way, C.S. Lewis wrote. I think I told you, and we didn't get to it, but it's on. It's I downloaded it on our site. C.S. Lewis wrote this um, essay called "The Humanitarian Theory of um, Justice." It was um, censored in England. They wouldn't publish it. This C.S. Lewis. They would not publish it. And in that piece, he's arguing that the old way of looking things is more humanitarian <coughs> than the modern. The modern psychological says, we are more humanist, we are more merciful than you are because you punish. We don't. Now that's a pretty upfront, clear, I mean a lot of people would want to turn away from old ways. People who punish are cruel and mean and people in therapy are kind and they listen and... What's he saying? In passing from this subject, I may not... I may note that there is a queer fallacy to the effect that materialism, materialistic fatalism is in some ways favorable to mercy, to the abolition of cruel punishments or punishments of any kind. He's saying that's not true. Why is it not true? What are the reasons? One of the questions that I asked at St. Francis when we were doing King Lear, because we had just done C.S. Lewis, and I don't think some of the people were happy with that essay, but, but both kinds, the old and the new, occur in King Lear. I want to wait on that, but why does Chesterton make this claim? That as a matter of fact, the old way of looking at punishment and rewards is far more merciful than the modern in which therapy goes on and you're not punishing somebody. Because on the surface it looks like he's wrong. That you're more caring, you're more merciful. Mary, go ahead. Well, sometimes the punishment keeps us from committing the sin. Some people won't stop. Yeah. Yeah. That almost goes to the heart of it because, I mean, what's I think what's behind Mary, if I can go there, um, is that in punishment you're, um, you're correcting the will of the person. 
you know, you're saying stop this, you're dealing with the will. In therapy you're very often dealing with the mind and what it's doing but you don't quite get to the will. You can go through therapy for years understanding, but does understanding necessarily translate into action in your will? No, I want to make this clear. We all know this, just a big clear, we all know that stealing is wrong. Does that keep us from stealing? We all know, I mean, otherwise I don't know why we have confession. I'm trusting everybody in this room thinks of himself as a sinner, or why would we have confession? We, we know that certain things are wrong. But in our world, certainly St. Paul, or we believe that we have these weaknesses that we have to struggle with um, and work at correcting them. But just having them in our head is not going to correct our wills. We need to do so. Um, Self-discipline, penance, doing things to correct our body, our will, are part of what we do to help become better. But still, I'm left with, why does he make this argument? This is startling, the reverse of the truth. What is perhaps, in, by, the, by the way, the way I was, I was going to go and I didn't do it a minute ago, but I skirted it. If you, oh, I didn't, but if you look at, if you look at teachers teaching in the university today, to go back to his point, Chesterton would say, I would say today more than 50% are mad. I mean, they just, what they do with their reason is insane. They're just not. If you watch these people in the political arena and you listen to their statements, they're sometimes horrifying. And if you watch in the modern world, the way a large part of our population treats criminals, you know that they send them back out on the street. The criminals are not being held responsible for their actions because they believe that the system created that problem. The system has to be changed. We're, individually, we're not responsible for ourselves. So they seem to be more merciful. Is that helping those people or the people around them? That's the same, same philosophy then as every person is good, they just have to do a bad thing. So we're trying to get rid of that bad thing by trying to correct their thinking <laughs> without, without, I guess just by thinking, okay, I, I did a bad thing, but I need to try not to do it again. I may find something different. I'm not sure where you. Well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure where you're going here either. It's, like, it's, it's confusing. To, and I understand right and wrong. I and I, I do that. But at the same time, it's, there's so much of what maybe what he's getting to is that there's so much of this. It's okay to do what you want to do without punishment. But Chesterton wouldn't lose everything over here. Chester would sorry. Most modern thinking today and teachers and politicians think that we're all wrong. That Vegas wrong basically that because we believe the right and wrong and logic and they're not. They're thinking again that hey, like you say, the system's wrong, so we gotta correct the system, but they're not correcting the system. <laughs> right. So that's a bigger push and now it's easier to be accepted because there's no punishment. 
I can do it again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And not, they do that, in fact. I mean, that's I'm what's not brought up against anybody that says you can't do that again. Yeah. Sorry, did somebody? Yeah, uh, it, this is working out. Listen to the rest of that. Chuck, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, it was a little. I, um, can you turn your mic down a little bit? I don't know if that'll help. But go ahead, Chuck. Yeah. Did, did you have a comment? I turned it on. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah, so Chester's not saying all that. It's all this you know, punishment. I mean, purpose to be a modern right where they think that. The system is caused by evils and it doesn't release them, but also apply the punishment theory to the purposes of science. But partially, the big difference, it seems to me, is if you're a materialist, you foreclose the possibility of appealing to your will, which is really the only thing. He's saying that Chesterman's not talking about humane and inhumane punishment. Talking about materialism, and right, right. Materialism doesn't make you any more generous in punishment. You can still punish cruelly. What you can't do. Well, is here, let me fit, Chuck. Let me let me finish his argument here to to see if this doesn't help. He says the determinist does not believe in applying. Wait, let me let me go back. Chester does believe in punishment and rewards. He does believe in a moral law. He believes in the Apostles' Creed. He's arguing against moderns who are denying that because most moderns would say we're not responsible for ourselves. Wait, they, there are two lines of thinking here. They'd say we're not responsible for ourselves in two ways. One is if, you're, if you believe in evolution, we're a product of, for, of forces over which we have no control. So we're not responsible in that way. If you're a Protestant, Reformed Protestant, I mean going back to Luther or Calvin, um, you're depraved. So it's only with grace that you can, you know, get help. If you're a modern therapist who is raised on these ideas, you're not going to believe in theory of punishment and rewards because you're going to look at that as inhuman. You believe in therapy because you think that's more compassionate. Chesterton's arguing against those positions. Anybody who, who is, and so today, my sense, if I were, I'm not sure this is picking up, but it, it, I'm trying to respond to what you said. My sense of what's being taught today is kids are being taught not that individuals are responsible for themselves because they're not for these reasons. It's that the system is at fault. So if they're materialists, they tend to be utopian socialists, that if we just create a new environment and get rid of all this other stuff, everybody will be good. And Chesterton's arguing against that. He's saying, remember, he started this by saying, in the old world, we start with sin. Today, we're starting with madness. That he's trying to address the way in which the modern mind has gone mad. And this is just one of the ways here when he's talking about, he says um, that some people hold a position of materials fatalism in some ways favorable to mercy. And he's saying, no, it's not. And here's the reason. The determinist does not believe in applying to the will. I mean, it partly goes to Mary's answer and the answer that I gave a while ago. If you keep letting a guy off, he doesn't learn to correct his will. If you're enabling in a family, let's say your son's an alcoholic and you just keep excusing him. 
What reason does he have to change? We, we have talked about this forever. Pity can be the greatest danger in a family. If the parents are pitying and they don't want to take any action and that kid's left, what good is that doing that kid? You want him in a program, you want to do something that's going to involve his will. Because until he changes his will, he's stuck. And, and I would say our culture is addictive driven. We all have vices and addictions and we struggle to correct them. He's saying a materialist, um, somebody could think of a materialist as having a more merciful view, but in fact that's not true. Here's the reason. The determinist does not believe in appealing to the will, but he does believe in changing the environment. Today, redo the system. It's the system that's bad. If we can create a socialist world in which everybody's equal, we'll be okay. What's the historical proof of, of the effects of socialism on people? Disastrous, just disastrous. He must not say, to, the determinist does not believe in appealing to the will, but he does believe in changing the environment. He must not say to the sinner, this is what Christ said, here's the Apostles' Creed, go and sin no more, because the sinner cannot help it. Christ said, go and sin no more. Why would he have said that unless he believed that every one of us can change? And we know how important healing is, because he healed. How important faith is in the process of healing. But he can put him into boiling oil, for boiling oil is an environment. Considered as a figure, therefore, the material says the fantastic outline of the figure of a madman. Both take a position at once unanswerable and intolerable. If materialism is so, it doesn't matter what you do because things are going to go that way whether you do it in here or not. You're back in a, you're a machine. That's not going to help people. What is, so here, and I want to, because we're about, a, I want to make something really clear because I don't want to make this black and white. When we did this at um, Francis, I was afraid we almost got there and I don't want to do that. In King Lear, both kinds of therapy are going on. You've all read it, we've done it together. There's a, there's a scene in which real therapy takes place, and there's a scene in which punishments are given. So in Shakespeare, it's not one or the other. The modern world wants therapy, and they want to do away with punishments. Send him back out on the street. Is that helpful to that person? Is it helpful to our society? Are, are both of these things at odds with each other, black-white? Because lots of people are going to put it that way. This is right, and this is, you know. Is there room for both of them? Let me go back to Lear. My argument is both kinds take place in Lear. Do you remember? There's a scene in which real therapy takes place and there's a scene in which punishments are given because they're both essential. Can you recall? Do any of you remember? It's when uh, the therapy is when Edgar takes his father to the edge of the cliff. Good for you. Yeah. And uh, uh, yep. his blind father. And yep. Uh, uh, does a play for him, yep. uh, and he's the, the father is visibly yep. changed by that. Yep. Yeah. And it's not lasting because remember when Gloucester gets to um, Dover Beach, he despairs again, and Ed gets really mad. <laughs> really mad. Did everybody hear that? Because it's right on. Edgar puts on a play. Stop and think about this. Think think about being in the position of having a, an a parent who's in, who's got Alzheimer or dementia. Is it going to do any good to scream at that person and say, knock it off, change? 
Is the Alzheimer person going to just... So what do you do in that instance? Can you think about it in any other way except as a play that you have to take on a role? Christ, you have to put yourself away to put on somebody else to see that person through, whatever that cost you. In Lear, that happened, if you remember, those of you who did it, remember? What about punishment and rewards in Lear? Mike, can you recall? Well, I'm trying to think. Edmund is certainly punished. In the end, he loses his life because of his misdeeds. Yep. And, and he, he, he repents. Yeah, amazing, amazing yeah, moment. Yeah. One of the most amazing moments in Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. And um, Goneril and Reagan both die. Um, I mean, think, just think, Shakespeare's so good. I mean, anyway, I, I just put that out, okay? Um, here, let me, we are supposed to get to. He ends the maniac by taking up the second difficulty of the modern world. In the next chapter, Suicide of Thought, he's gonna take up a number. The will, pragmatism, what were they, you remember all the um, theory of progress, nominalism, evolution, We'll go through, I thought we'd get through them tonight, but I'm dragging it again. Um, he ends the maniac by taking up skepticism. So his, he, remember he said, I want to take up the disorders of the modern world. The first one, because it narrows the mind and pushes the mind towards madness. Anybody who, who, take, who assumes a material position is already shrinking his head. He doesn't allow for more things. Grace. Intervention with God, miracles, anything. Intelligence, free will, all of those are gone. It's a narrower world. And he ends by taking up skepticism. What's the problem with skepticism? The materialists believe that there's nothing but matter. That's a shrunken vision of the world. What's the problem with the skeptic? It's like the opposite. Go ahead. Yeah. They don't believe in anything. So you've got these two extremes. Now think about what skepticism does to the mind. If nothing's real, to what do you appeal? To what do you turn for help in dealing with anything? So here in The Maniac, his first concern is to take on the disorders of the modern world, and here he takes on two of the major ones, the materialist and the skeptic. That have, think about how many people grow up today intellectually doubting everything. Remember we, when we went through this, I mean, in some sense, Descartes is the, is the prototype of that in the modern world. He says we have to doubt everything except the ideas in our heads, so he pushes everybody in our heads. Whatever we have in our heads is real. Whatever's out there, that's, that's called idealism in, as a philosophic tradition. Not idealism in the way we're used to thinking of it, you know, when we're young or idealistic. The idealist tradition is that you, the only thing real is the ideas in our heads. We have to doubt everything outside of us. So those are the two major disorders in the first, or in the maniac, okay? And his contention is that in, um, in both of them, they have the result of pushing us in the direction of madness in the sense that, that they contract our world that reason becomes terribly efficient 
but it just works in a narrower, smaller world. So hold on to the question um, with which I opened the class. If our minds are disordered, if there's something wrong, Bob's word was proper, if we're not using reason properly, if we're not using it well, what does it do to our faith? That's what we're about. So how, how does being a materialist affect our faith? How does being a skeptic affect our faith? What does it do to us? Okay. Can we answer them? Can we say why? Do we have a proper reason? Can we use reason well? Okay. Let me stop. Any, anybody on, online, um, Chuck, Lori, John, Cassandra, Anne, Melody, any of you guys have questions? I don't want to... I'm sorry, we should have gotten to suicide of thought. Uh, um, I've got to make a vow here and not break it. <laughs> next week we're going to do suicide of thought and the next chapter, I think, which is uh, ethics of Elfland. If I'm, but we'll do two chapters. I think it'll be easier now that we're going because at least we're into Chester and we're seeing his arguments. He's going to continue the same line of thinking in, in suicide of thought because he's going to look at the major disorders of our time, the ones that I mentioned, materialism, evolution, pragmatism, all of those, and what they do to our minds and the effect that has on our faith. So next week we should be able to get through two chapters, but anybody online? Melanie, I know you've got a question. I don't have a question. Well, you can hear Yeah, can you turn it down a little bit more still? Um, but one of my favorite lines was um, the poet. Uh, the poet asked his head into heaven with intellectual eyes and hands. Right. Yes. Yeah. And the fact that that's what leads to humanity is you can't cram that all into your head, so you have to <laughs> open it. <laughs> Yeah. That was such a wonderful visual to me. I love that. Yeah. That part of it. I mean, listening to you talk about it works out all those things I love to talk about this book, but it is hard to grasp at first. There's so much. Yes. Yeah. He's happy here. Yeah. Well, just know that I think it's true for all of us. I mean, he's he writes so simply and he's so fun with his paradoxes and his humor. But there's such a depth to what he, he sees so deeply in ways that most people don't, so yeah. I love that line too. You know, yeah, no, I mean, the man that tried to cram the whole world into his head. And by the way, I, I just really, you know, I, Chesterton's such an amazing man for me. It's hard for me to think about him without thinking that's exactly what he did, because he knows so much. So nobody would have, I'm not kidding about this. I think he knew the things threatened him. He knows the danger of them. Because the difference between a guy who takes everything and tries to cram it in his head and somebody who stays open is the difference between a madman and a healthy man. And I really believe, given how, how, um, how open he must have been to learning, to receive things, to put them in his head. Because, you know, he, what? He wrote over a hundred books and thousands of articles. He just had so much in his head and he would write multiple books at the same time. Like, he would have wine, <laughs> like, writing for him, and he would be writing 
writing and he would be dictating to her one book while he was writing another book at the same time. Yeah. And he was able to just go back and forth. See, my feeling is, I, and I'm just laughing because I, I, I so love it. He, I mean, he's been with me forever, but I, I think about that and think, he was on the edge of madness himself, and he knew it. And what saved him is his wife or somebody else helping him to dictate so that, you know, there's something else out there. There's this funny story. I'm sorry Suzanne's not here, but the introduction she's got is a wonderful introduction in it. Um, Doc! Here, no, I'll get it. She's here. Hold on, just for, I know we're late, but here, hold on. Because I think this guy quotes a poem of Chesterton's. This is, this is a poem of Chesterton's. Here dies another day, during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world round me. And with tomorrow begins another. Why am I allowed to? <laughs> um, in this same introduction, the guy, the guy quotes a, um, a, a scene from Chesterton's life in which he called home because he absent-minded, I mean, I can't imagine him, not, you know, having the right pair of socks on or tying his shoes or, you know, kicking a, a stone on the pen, whatever. I mean, he's just, but his mind had to be going all the time. Um, but at some point, he found him some, somewhere and he wasn't sure how he got there or where he was supposed to be and he called his wife and said, where am I supposed to be at this time? And his wife said, you're supposed to be home. <laughs> I mean, what can you say except he's a perfect description of the passage that you're quoting, Melody, you know, that cramming, at the same time that he was absolutely open to the world in an amazing way. Okay, um, sorry we didn't get to Suicide of Thought. Next week, Suicide of Thought, and I think it's the ethics of Elfland. You all stay safe, and please, Kick a stone, sing a song, do anything, but don't go mad. <laughs> I want to see you all next week. Bye. Chuck, Lori, Anne, all of you, John. You got. Yeah. I was trying to get a picture of it because it's so much. It's Ignatius. Ignatius. It's a collection, so it has oh. heretics and it's got other things in him. The Ignatius Press has all of his books. So if you go if you Google Ignatius Press you'll okay. all right. thanks all right. for always being willing to help, David. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Oops. <laughs>